0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and this is an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast series. And today we're talking to Stephanie Burt about her book, After Callimachus. It's been published by Princeton University Press. I believe it came out in 2020, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Stephanie, uh, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Good. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: About me? Okay. Um. from Washington, D.C. I've lived in Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York City and England and Minnesota. And I have some loyalty to Minnesota. I used to teach at McAllister College in St. Paul. And since 2007, I have been back in Massachusetts teaching at Harvard. Um, I guess that's the... the I'll give you more. Uh, no, got- that's good that, if, if that's what you want to say, that's what you say. Yeah. Two cats, one dog, two kids. Uh, we live in Belmont. I wrote a book called Belmont. Uh, I write about poetry a lot and I think about the X-Men way too much and they'll probably'll probably come <laughs> out later in this podcast.
0: Yes, uh, one of my daughters is really into manga, so I think a lot about manga these days um it's a thriving field oh i tell you what um so my first question is uh how did you become a poet and a translator of poetry
1: so those are two questions yep uh one the first one how how does anyone become a poet uh i mean you know practice uh realizing that you have nothing better to do with your time (laughs) um uh, gentle encouragement or at least a lack of discouragement from peers and teachers when uh, discouragement was uh, you know perhaps just as easily warranted uh, the thing I like about making poetry one of the things I like about making poetry as opposed to any other art form is that at least when you're starting you can do it anywhere uh, 10 minutes at a time for free um, and the models the the kinds of, of work that you might want to imitate when you're trying to learn to write poetry are out there in libraries. They're out there on the internet. If what you're doing is writing short poems rather than trying to be, you know, the next Spencer or the next uh, Virgil, uh, you can read them for 10 minutes at once and then go back to what you're doing. And you can combine trying to write poetry with other things. Uh, When I was a teen, I really very much enjoyed writing poetry, but uh, doing something involving literature was definitely my third choice for uh, what I wanted to do with my occupation, with my career. My first choice was singer-songwriter, and my second choice was molecular biologist. And then I got to college, and I learned uh, that it's not really worth anyone's time to hear me sing, and it's definitely (laughs) not a good idea to have me anywhere near a lab. (laughs) <laughs> and so I uh, fortunately discovered that my literature professors thought that this was a good thing for me to be doing with my time. So I decided to focus on writing poetry and writing about poetry for a bit, and I uh, that's where I am. And it it, it it turns out also that right because poems, at least the poems that I like, are about things. Writing poems involves putting words together so that they sound memorable and moving and make you want to hear them or read them again. But poems are also about things and they're a way of writing about things. And it turns out I like writing about things and I have written poems and also what I hope is intelligible prose, uh, not just about the thing that poets conventionally write about, uh, you know, erotic desire and fulfillment and loneliness and longing and parenthood and um, outrage and disappointment and patience, uh, and cats, of course. Um, and dogs. <laughs> now we have dogs, so the next book's going to have a dog poem, which I never did. Uh, but also about the various things I'm a fan of: um, women's basketball, uh, abstract painting, X-Men comics, other comics, the Shira television show, which I cannot praise enough. Wait, I'm writing this down. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I have a, a kind of fan mentality, I suppose. And the last time someone wrote about my work at any length, I was accused of being, I think, a gushing fountain of praise. I've also been called a fangirl, which the person reviewing my work thought was an insult. You um, <laughs> didn't say fangirl because the piece appeared a while ago, but uh, if, if you switch out the correct gendered terms, fangirl, and that's not remotely an insult, uh, I like to think that... I can provide the, you know, critical and conceptual tools to help people find new things and understand what they like and understand how people are different one from another. All of which are, you know, things that criticism exists to do. Uh, but I, I like liking things, as one of my favorite podcasters has said, and I like connecting people to things that that they, you know, might be changed by, might be transformed by, uh, and might get joy from. And sometimes they do that in the poems that I write. And that brings me to translation. Right, good. Let me know if I'm talking too fast by no, the way. You're not I'm, talking too fast. Okay. I have I think I think a lot, uh, this partly has to do with the work of translation about different ways of using English, different speeds and inflections and word hordes that different kinds of English use. And I'm aware that my kind of English sounds perhaps very American to people using other kinds of world English and uh, perhaps very East coast and a bit rapid and bookish if you're used to other kinds of, of speech. Um, so tell me if I need to slow down. So poems come from other poems as well as from the life experience of the writer. And, some of the, the most fertile and delightful moments in the history of poetry in English have been the moments when poems were most likely to come from other poems in other languages. Uh, Chaucer, who's not the first person to write verse in English, but who's the first person we think about all the time uh, and read a lot of who wrote verse in, in English, unless you kind of old English, which is a different language. Chaucer is constantly reading French and Italian. He's reading Latin too. And he's taking poems in those languages and changing them and putting them into English. And he's not necessarily doing an accurate translation, but he's adapting and that's how he gets his ideas. Uh, Poets of the 16th century, uh, people like uh, Wyatt and and Spencer are constantly doing this as well. They're getting their ideas by turning cool stuff in other languages into English. And that is still happening today uh, from Poets like Brandon Somme, who has some very intricate translations, uh, or versions rather, of Chinese, a language he does not read fluently. Translating poems uh, and adapting, doing free translations or semi-translations from other languages is one of the best ways to expand your own poetic style and to enrich the language that you're writing in and just to get new ideas. And W.H. Auden, who I trust on most things... And who was very, very down on many of the components of academic creative writing and of academic literary studies as he founded in America, although he was a very learned person, said that the only exercise that he recommended for would be poets, uh, the only things that, that poets really needed to do to get better at, at poetry composition uh, was you need to find peers. You need to find other beginners or other sort of intermediate writers so that you can read each other's work and react as peers, not as experts. And you need to be reading other languages and translating and, you know, whether or not it produces translations worth reading, it will certainly make you a better poet. Now, Princeton university press has decided to actually publish a book of very free translations Uh, that I I put together. uh, That's the result of my engagement with this particular poet, Callimachus, and also of me off and on looking for work to translate and sometimes sending my translations and versions and adaptations out into the world, not just of Callimachus, but of uh, a little bit of other Greek lyric and of other writers I admire in Spanish now and again. But Callimachus is by far the, the largest of my, engagements with translation adaptation imitation working with poetic sources in another language and i think this is where we switch tracks from me talking about me to me talking about (laughs) that is that right
0: yeah that's right so my next question is why callimachus there's a lot there are a lot of greek poets to
1: choose from why did you choose callimachus's poems well when you when you look at greek poets where Quite a lot of relatively short poems have survived. There are fewer than you think. But Callimachus is absolutely the right poet for me for a number of reasons. he I'll give you the the capsule bio, and then we'll lead into why he seems right for me. He's someone who may have spent his entire life in North Africa. He's from what today is Libya, and he lives most or all of his adult life in Uh, Alexandria in Egypt, which is a port city, it's a cosmopolitan city, it's sort of the Paris of its time, uh, or maybe the Shanghai. And it is in his lifetime starting to build what we now know as the Library of Alexandria, the repository of knowledge of the ancient world. And Callimachus is around and he's writing at a time when there are already centuries of ancient Greek literature to draw on uh, we call ancient Greek and Latin the classics, uh, and of course, uh, you know, Sappho didn't go around saying, uh, "I am part of the classics." Uh, she just composed her poems, and uh, you know, Aeschylus, the playwright in in classical Athens, didn't say, "You know, uh, I am part of a revered tradition," unless <laughs> the tradition of of myth, the oral tradition, because those are people who are really at the dawn of the written literature. Uh, you know, Hesiod is another example of this. Um, those are people who, who are, those are people who have a claim to be near the origin of uh, Western Mediterranean or particular kind of, of culture that we now call maybe misleadingly Western culture. Uh, it is also, of course, North African culture. Um, those are people, uh, again, Sappho is a good example, or Pindar, those are people where when, you know, German Romantics Uh, go on about the origin of everything and the secret to all of modernity can be unlocked in the brilliant primevalness of the earliest Greek texts. Uh, When those people talk about classics, they are not talking about Callimachus. Callimachus is the opposite of that. Callimachus is an extremely sophisticated, worldly, late-coming, non-mystical, sometimes down-to-earth or ironic, uh, sometimes a little bit fussy, or I'm going to use the word femme here, a detail-oriented, self-conscious writer who is writing at a time when the classics are already classics. One of his uh, one-liners, and this is in the book, it says in, in English, uh, I give you nothing that doesn't have a source. Uh, everything that I tell you Uh, I read about it somewhere. I can footnote it if you want. Um, Callimachus is someone who's quite self-conscious about and who's okay with not being a primeval poetic source of prophetic chaos or instinct. And for someone like me, who is uh, a trans girl, who's femme, who's detail-oriented, who's quite self-conscious... Uh, who I sometimes feel I don't really have instincts, I just have feelings and friends and things that I've learned, Uh, for someone who exists at an absolute remove from the primeval power of you'll just know what to do when you get there, for someone who likes reading things in books, including comic books, Uh, and for someone who's quite social, uh, who likes making connections to other people rather than simply reaching inside myself, Callimachus is an ideal collaborator. Uh, I feel that I have a lot in common with him. And uh, of course he is a dude and gender and sex in the ancient world do not work the way that they work in my world in 2021. But it is quite easy if that's what you're looking for to find analogies for modern queer and trans identities, including mine, and for modern feminism in Callimachus, again, if that's what you're looking for. Uh, The poems in my book that are the most overtly feminist, that are the most overtly about, you know, we need to fight patriarchy, are not necessarily, and they're usually not the ones that are the most faithful to the Greek originals, uh, but those resources are available in his work. And his relation to kinds of poems, not to sentiments expressed within the poems, but to what kinds of poems he chose to write are also very congenial to me. One of the other uh, witticisms that he's often quoted out of context for is megabiblion megacacon, which means a big or great or large book is a big or great or large evil or bad thing or uh, pain in the ass. He was someone who had no ambition to compete with Homer. He was someone who would have thought that the Snyder Cut uh, was a ball of macho ridiculousness. Uh, He was someone who wrote narrative poems, uh, and I translate some of his narrative work, uh, but someone who did not at all want to compete with the greats of the past or the present in terms of scale or scope or strength. He was someone who wanted to be precise and beautiful and interesting and engaging and useful and learned and sometimes unpredictable. And He defended himself or articulated his poetics quite self-consciously in a couple of the poems that I translate that are sort of pushing back against people who said, well, why don't you do something more bold and original and large scale? And his answer was, that's not me. And also stop being a macho jerk. (laughs) Um, He had a proverbial rivalry with the poet Apollonius of Rhodes, who was known for his epics. Um, They probably didn't really hate each other, uh, but they did, Represent rival concepts of what this art form in that day, uh, that Hellenistic period, was supposed to be about. And again, I am absolutely on Callimachus's side right here.
0: Um, you've reminded me a little bit of
1: a fascination
0: that my 11 year old daughter has with fan fiction. This is in manga universes, and she loves to read it. Okay. I don't think any of these people have, you know, they're not creating something exactly new. Well, was neither in a was tradition, Virgil. neither with yeah. Virgil.
1: Uh, this yeah. is honestly an entire other podcast. Do you read fan fiction yourself? I don't know. Okay, you're missing, you may be missing out. I,
0: I'm sure my 11 year old tells me every day how much I'm missing, and there are all these brilliant people out there writing this brilliant fan fiction, which she finds online. It'll never be published except online, and she uh, is fans of some of the people
1: who write fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, and that speaks. Oh, so am I. That speaks quite well of your relationship with your eleven-year-old. Yeah, she's always trying to get me to read this. Um,
0: let me ask you a, a couple of questions about uh, Callimachus. Okay, um, we can talk one, about fanfiction
1: some more if you want. Yeah, you I would, but um, I yeah
0: I would. I think I would be out of my depth
1: there, okay. but I could learn a lot. Okay, um, I will. I will say that there are uh, another thing that Callimachus likes doing. Do you know what an Easter egg is? Yes, I do. Okay. So uh, Callimachus, uh, I hope it, it may be clear from my description already. Callimachus' poems are full of Easter eggs. And the longer I'm in the poetry world and the literature world, the more I uh, the more I dislike the kind of modernism that requires you to get all the references before you can have an aesthetic experience. Um, you know, I, I like the wasteland, but I don't want to write the wasteland. And you know, I'm very tired of uh, the kind of modernism that I associate with, uh, you know, the later work of Ezra Pound or with certain slices of the modern post-avant-garde, where you you have to know all the references, you have to have read Agamben, you have to have read Gramsci, you have to have uh, read, um, uh, you know, Tasso and Ariosto, or you won't get anything. Uh, that's, I'm just not interested in that, but I love Easter eggs. I, I love the idea that if you happen to get this reference, the work becomes deeper and richer for you, but it's quite optional. And there are quite a lot of, uh, references, e- Easter eggs in my Callimachus book, uh, in, in homage to the Greek originals, although we're his, and surely there are some that refer to lost works that we as, Uh, You know, moderns will never get, uh, rather than referring to other works of the Mediterranean, the ancient Mediterranean world, um, I've got a whole bunch of Easter eggs that are either to modern literary culture, poetic culture, or to various parts of the comic book and the comic book fan world. Um, Yeah,
0: I, I remember when I was in college and people would say, that's a difficult text.
1: And that just made me want to run away. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, people are into difficult texts. Some of my favorite poets are quite difficult, uh, but I don't, I don't want to make texts that are difficult in that way. What I want is texts that are difficult to get to the bottom of, right? You can read, you can read Pride and Prejudice once. uh, It's not a difficult text to read once, uh, at least, you know, not, not for me, but it is, is quite difficult to feel that you've gotten to the bottom of it to feel that you know all of what jane austen is trying to do and i would actually argue that for austin you never get there and i'd love to have my work be difficult in that way yeah i also want yeah. it to be inviting
0: yeah i agree with you completely i just read ralph ellison's invisible man for the third time and trust me i found new things in it oh yeah <laughs> well, i really found new things yeah
1: yeah that's a um, very that's a very good example
0: Yeah, there's a lot going on there. And the guy was kind of a genius. And well, anyway, I could go on and on about that. But tell me this what language did Callimachus write in?
1: Oh, he wrote in (laughs) Greek. You wrote in Greek.
0: Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, let's go on to the next question. And that is we've been using this word translate very freely, but that's not really accurate. Um, And you signal this in the book by. Uh, something you called the imitator's note that precedes the poems itself. What do you mean by the imitator's note? And what would you call these if they're not translations? They're kind of sort of translations.
1: They're imitations. They're imitations and adaptations. Some of them are, in fact, translations. Some of them are attempts to uh, produce musically coherent and uh, memorable and moving words, uh, sets of words in English that are as close as I can get to what the greek seems to be doing and those are translations but most of them are not most of them deviate in uh word order in sense in example in descriptive detail in what i have left out uh in what i want you to envision most of them deviate in some way from the greek originals and That is, uh, you know, a literary tradition that is older than the English language. It is distinct from the tradition of trying to produce accurate, reliable translations, um, which I am not equipped to do by myself. I have enough Greek to do what I did, uh, but I couldn't have done that without consulting and working with Mark Payne from the University of Chicago, who is one of my favorite humans and who uh, contributed an introduction that's really scholarly in a way that I can't be. Um, these are poems based on, uh, and responsive to and derived from, uh, what I see in the Greek originals, but most of them, uh, do not reflect, uh, line by line or sentence by sentence what Callimachus says. And, uh, there are a couple where I virtually reverse the meaning where the original is, for example, delightful and, and witty and well-constructed, but kind of sexist, um, (laughs) <laughs> there are a couple, uh, you know. There's 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 a couple of love poems that are about the joy of the catch and the chase, and you know, taking down your lover as if they were a rabbit, um, and that's the opposite of how erotic relationships ought to work. Um, but even even that poem, uh, you know, most of it does come in some way from what Callimachus wrote, but uh, I did you know reverse it. Um, A book that a lot of people I know dislike that I rather like uh, is Robert Lowell's early 60s book, Imitations, in which he just zoomed through his favorite classical and Western European poets and produced versions that sounded like Robert Lowell. Uh, And I wouldn't want to sound like Robert Lowell, and I couldn't if I tried, uh, I I think. Um, But his going to these poems he admired in order to make poems that worked in English, uh, is, has been, you know, something I admired. One, one difference between what he's trying to do and what I was trying to do was that his poems sound like him. And to the extent they don't sound like him, they sound like the variety of poets he was taking on. Um, he wasn't sort of trying to create a consistent persona throughout that book. His relic sounds like some, uh, Sort of mashup of um, Lowell plus Rilke, and his his Baudelaire actually sounds like Baudelaire because Lowell sounds like Baudelaire sometimes. They have the same kind of self hate, uh, but you know his his Sappho doesn't sound like Sappho. Uh, his, the 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 Kolymicus that I'm trying to speak through, if it works, it is consistent throughout the book, and it, it sounds this poems sound like one another. And there's some version of me that's in there, but it's not exactly the same as uh, the poems that I write and that just say Stephanie Bird on them.
0: Yeah. I I want to digress for a second about translation. I've tried to do some of it myself from Russian (laughs) and even old Russian into English. And I have to say I failed utterly because all of my translations sounded like me.
1: (laughs) That's not necessarily a failure. That's just something (laughs) other than an accurate translation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, were you, but were I, you, I, are you translating verse or, or prose? Or uh, no,
0: it was all it was all prose. Um, but it, it's just that I, I get to the point in the translation. Sometimes I would translate scholarly articles for people, and I would get to the, some point in the text, and I would say, you know, I think they should have said this like that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's a problem in translation theory, especially. I mean, it sounds like you're translating people who aren't necessarily great prose stylists themselves.
0: Yeah, I'm no great pro-stylist, but I just get to the point that I I, I say, you know, I, I think there's a better way to put this, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah.
1: And that's depending on what kind of translation you're trying to produce that is either verboten or very much desirable. Yeah. Um,
0: th- this is kind of a process question. Well, it's a historical question. I'm a historian. I'm a medievalist. And one of the things that always fascinates me is, is how texts come down to us. Could you talk a little bit about how... how Uh, Callimachus' poems made their way to us? What do we have?
1: What don't we have? How do they survive? Absolutely. So we have... Callimachus wrote several different kinds of poems. He wrote hymns, which are uh, short narrative poems or short poems that contained a narrative praising Olympian gods. Uh, He wrote what we call epigrams. uh, They're all short and some of them are funny or witty or insulting. And some of them are about love and sex. And some of them are uh, memorials or, or uh, comments on, on the dead and on other topics. But they're all, they're all quite short. He wrote lyric poems uh, that are also short, but that had song-like qualities. He wrote what we call Apulians, uh, short-ish epics. Uh, that have unified subjects or framing subjects in which various stories get told. Ovid's Metamorphoses is, it's not a Napoleon, that's too long, but he wrote poems that that look like Ovid's Metamorphoses and that, that you get a framed tale and then other tales inside it, but that are shorter. He wrote a very celebrated long poem called The Aetia, which is several books worth of what we in the comic book field call origin stories. How did this come to be? Uh, And the Aetia is also, to some extent, a travel book. He takes various uh, legends and factoids and things you would see if you visited parts of the ancient Mediterranean and answers questions like, why is that there? There's a city where you're not allowed to say the name of the city. Why is, why? Um, Why is the. Temple on this island in this bizarre shape with an idol that you'd never see elsewhere in the ancient Mediterranean. Why is that? Why, why, why? How did these things come to be? And the Aetia is a collection of works in verse that are linked together that tell stories about why, why, why in the ancient world. And there are a couple other categories of works that he produced. Now they've survived in different ways. The hymns. And the epigrams survive complete. Uh, entire you know, scribally transmitted books of these things have come complete all the way down into the late medieval world and the early Renaissance world where they could be uh, put into print. And we have them. We have them all. All of the other works, uh, the Aetia and um, the rest of it, they all survive only in fragments, sometimes because they're quoted in other works, sometimes because somebody found uh, a piece of paper somewhere. Uh, a number of them have turned up, if I'm not mistaken, in oxyrhynchus, I'm pronouncing it wrong, uh, but they, they've turned up in, in modern days in, in discoveries, in archaeological digs where you somebody finds a piece of papyrus. And it turns out that the words on it are continuous with words in another fragment that we already know as Callimachus, and so we get more of that poem or longer poems. There are quite a lot of these fragments because Callimachus was a very popular a very well-known writer in the ancient world. And if you're a modern poetry fan, honestly, Auden is probably the best analogy. Uh, Nobody thought of Auden as the great prophet and source of everything, uh, nobody is going <laughs> to a, a cult around Auden, and Auden certainly didn't want that. Um, but everybody thinks he's super smart, and uh, mo- everyone I respect about poetry thinks that there's some of Auden that you can admire. And um, in some sense, it all sounds like Auden, but there are a lot of different kinds of works, and Auden was very conscious of changing what kinds of works that he wrote in. So if you imagine that uh, two of Auden's books. Uh, let's say the sea in the mirror and um, the one, the, the book that has a Musee des Beaux-Arts in it uh, survive complete and everything else just turns up when people copied into their journals or quoted on Tumblr uh, or you know, you have <laughs> 20 pages of a Princeton University Press book about Auden from 2002. Uh, it's like that. And you, know, you never know when somebody's going to dig up a little bit more, but there are a lot of fragments, but they are fragments. And I treat the fragments because a lot of the, the work in After Callimachus is fragments. My goal is to produce poems that feel like entire poems in English. And sometimes I translate one fragment as if it were a poem. And sometimes I paste several of them together. And some of them uh, as with the, the story of Sedipi early on, some of them are fragments where we know that they belong together. And some of them, uh, I just, you know, got up my glue pot and put together fragments that, that seem to work to make a short poem. Uh, that is, would be a mashup, right? Ma- well, I mean, a mashup <laughs> with multiple authors. This is, this is yeah. more like a, a, a piece stuff. Um, yeah. uh, and Callimachus is someone who was very, Conscious of quoting and sort of wanted to be quoted and quotable. He's a poet who you can do this to.
0: Um, could you talk a little bit about, uh, now I know a wrote uh, things other than poetry because I read the Wikipedia page or what <laughs>
1: other interests did he have? So I believe the other his, his prose work I believe does do not, does not survive. Uh-huh. Um, But uh, we do know that there are some. Uh, There's a tradition that he was a librarian at the Library of Alexandria. He was there when that was starting. Um, And uh, so he's involved in the collection and uh, making available of knowledge from throughout the ancient world. There's also a tradition that he was what we now call a high school teacher, which is a very low prestige job in antiquity. Uh, But he has a couple of poems about the labors of teaching and why that wasn't fun for him um, poking fun at, uh, people he knows who had to undertake that job after he had grown out. of it. Uh-huh. Um, but he, he was primarily known and extensively known as a poet.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, th- this is also a process question and, and, and it relates to a personal experience. So in some of these translations I was doing, I had other translations at my knee. I found this very irritating.
1: Yeah. so it depends depends on how good you are with your source language and what you're trying to do. Um, I don't, it's actually not true. It, It is one experience and I have done it to translate or adapt or imitate work into English where the Poem you're working with already has a number of well known translations. There's a Cesar Vallejo poem that everybody and their cousin translates that I've adapted into English. Uh, it's a weird, sad poem that I just love to death. Um, but with Callimachus, there are, as far as I know, three translations of all the poems or most of the poems into English. And uh, the body of translation that has been most helpful to me and that I did consult uh, is the ever-helpful Loeb Classical Library, which is it's just a whole bunch of uh, very, uh, you know, um, helpful, uh, not beautiful prose translations by classical scholars, some of whom did this work 80 years ago and some of whom did this work more recently. Uh, but at this point, the Loeb Classical Library provides for Callimachus, as for all the major poets of the uh, ancient world of, of, you know, the, the Western Mediterranean, um, just blocks of prose that either tell you more or less what the Greek is saying, or give you one version of what the Greek is saying that is at least reliable, or uh, almost do that, but leave out the sexy bits, um, when you're working, with older love classical library work from Greek, sometimes you get either uh, deliberate uh, sort of euphemisms, or suddenly the English turns into Latin, uh, where it's uh, you know, instructions on um, how to have really fun sex. Um, so you know you don't want to do that without reading Greek at all, uh, and you don't want to do that without an awareness uh, that often the translators are making choices and other choices are possible, but those are extremely useful. And one of the things that I loved about working with Callimachus is that there aren't tons and tons of existing beautiful English translations. There are others. Uh, someone named Frank Nisitic, or Nisitic with assistance, did a version of a lot of Callimachus, um, I think less than 20 years ago, uh, early 2000s, I think. And um, those are attempts to be more or less accurate. Um, he doesn't, you know, introduce jet planes and, you know, tumbler. Um, it's also someone, and they're very good for what they are. Uh, it's someone whose sense of how verse should sound in translation uh, was much closer to Pound's than to Auden's, uh, and so his ear is not my ear at all. Um, so these other translations do exist. I think there's one more from the, the late. 20th century. Um, But there aren't a lot. Uh, The one that I really loved using was the Loeb Classical Library, which is not trying to create poems in English. And um, I did find myself deliberately not consulting the other verse versions uh, until I had at least draft of what I was doing. Um, I have
0: a question. It's not on the list. I'm sorry. So if you don't want to answer it, you don't have to.
1: I, I, I'm, uh, I mean, this is this is this is what's not live. Uh, this is audio. Uh, this is for. audio. Yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah, this the is
1: spontaneity. Spontaneity. This is I assume, is, This is spontaneity. The appearance, uh, the appearance uh, of spontaneity is beautiful and valuable.
0: Yeah. So it's about register. And, you know, when I would translate stuff from the 18th century Russian, let's say, I didn't really understand what register they were writing in. And by register, I mean kind of highbrow, lowbrow, with a lot of slang, without a lot of slang, because I just didn't know the language well enough. How do you deal with the question of register uh, in in translating poems that are as old as these? So that
1: is three questions. (laughs) Okay. One is how do you deal, how do you notice register as a matter of word choice in the source language? How do you know when a particular word suggests, uh, mega politeness or is very colloquial and familiar or has a, a regional or otherwise specialized implication? And the answer to that is I don't know, because I'm not actually a classical scholar. My Greek is not awesome. It's good enough to do this. So they tell me. Um, They seem, you know, people seem to like it. Uh, Classical scholars tell me that I'm not embarrassing myself. Um, (laughs) My Greek is good enough to do this, but my Greek is not good enough to make fine distinctions of register, uh, even where they are possible, which with ancient Greek, it sometimes is. You can say, because we know where else these words occur, right? Like nobody has conversational ancient Greek. But we can say this word occurs only in Dorian texts. This is a Homeric word, Mm -hmm. right? This is a word uh, that never occurs in Athenian text. This is a word that when it occurs in uh, plays is only spoken by characters of low social status. We can sort of cross-check and make guesses about words, but those are guesses. The second question is about tone in the original. Uh, When does the content or the syntax or the framing of what's being said suggest familiarity or formality or, uh, you know, would appeal to someone of higher social station or an insult? Um, And in English, at least American English, doesn't, we have a lot of words, but we don't have highly defined registers of formality the way a language like Japanese does. And we don't have extraordinarily, at least within North America and U S and Canada, English, uh, or standard English, we don't have, uh, a language that works like Arabic where there are different ways of, of communicating that have entirely different regional, national, and social class implications, right? There's nothing like classical Arabic and English. There's not even really anything like modern standard Arabic, uh, which sounds very different from uh, what you'd hear on the street in, um, so I'm told, uh, you know, Iraq. Um, so in, in English, we are used to having a lot of words. We are used to not necessarily knowing the level of formality or the register from the words. Uh, and we are used to looking at many, many cues at once to try to, to figure out tone. And that I can do. But the fun thing about this project is that if I guess wrong... And I get Callimachus's tone and register wrong. And I'm happy and, you know, you're happy with the poem that I've produced in English. That's fine. The goal is poems that are self-consistent and, you know, moving and thoughtful and, you know, fun. And maybe you learn something in English that are based on what Callimachus is doing. And I do not pretend to get everything right in the source text. The, the, the goal is to have the target language produce you know, works of art that are uh, unpretentious and uh, fun and maybe have some wisdom in them. So there's not really an impact to guessing the tone and getting it wrong. But I do have to guess. You do have to, to make a guess.
0: Yeah, I think I spent too much time with philologists who <laughs> they, they really go to town on this stuff.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of philology.
0: Oh, I am too. Uh, but, I just can't do the work.
1: Yeah, well, there's, there's, a very, there's a very good book, actually. I don't think it's a Princeton book. Uh, it might have been called Philology, published about two years ago, about the history of the thing we call philology and what it has contributed to the way that we read now.
0: Uh, yeah, which is a lot.
1: Which is a ton.
0: <laughs> really?
1: yeah. And if, if you're of you know my generation... Uh, you were told that the most important thing in the history of literary criticism was debates among theoretical models of literature in general, which is wrong. It's, it's massively, massively wrong. And what's right? Uh, well, uh, a lot of people are right at once and nobody has the whole truth. Uh, but there is a complex history of vernacular practice which interacts with and has never completely been subsumed by um, general theoretical models of how we read. and indeed the the general theoretical models of how we read, when they change, uh, often change because they have new infusions of people learning uh-huh. from practice.
0: Yeah, vernacular practice. i really I really like that expression. I think that's what my eleven year old daughter is partaking in when she reads fan fiction. Oh,
1: hundred percent. and they theorize yeah. themselves. yeah, uh, there's the, some, the, the there's, best yeah. the best theorist there's an academic discipline called fan studies. Uh, and my friends do it and I do a little bit of it. Uh, and, and when it's done well, um, I mean, half the people who are involved in academic fan studies are writing fan fiction themselves. Uh, they don't necessarily want you to connect, uh, they don't necessarily want you to connect their fan fiction to their academic writing. Um, there's a long tradition of this, right? There are the, the great English professors who wrote mysteries under pseudonyms. Right. Um, but uh if you're doing academic fan studies as well, you are looking at the way that that fans are creating and circulating models for why they do what they do and and how we we process it, and its distance from institutional power is part of its appeal
0: it's liberating it's very liberating for the people who do it. they don't have to worry about all these things
1: uh or they don't have to worry about some of them worry about it, about these things differently.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes. That's much yeah. better put. If,
1: if you, if you'd like, I can, I can recommend some, some works of uh, very safe for work. Don't worry. Fanfic, uh, in which characters from the Marvel comic universe worry about institutional power dynamics and sources of authority. Uh, that is one of the eternal topics of fiction and poetry. Uh-huh. Uh, but if you are a fan fiction writer, you don't have to, worry about these things in the same way as you do if you're an academic. And um, the, the work, I should add that, that I think you were sort of moving in, in this direction anyway, um, I would not describe my Callimachus book as fanfic because the term fanfiction carries with it uh, an implication of distance from commercial publishing. Uh, and of course, I'm very grateful to Princeton University Press for commercially publishing my work. Uh, and it is some of it's available for free because it's been published in online magazines. But if you want the whole thing, uh, I do recommend that you send twenty four ninety five to Princeton University. <laughs> to um, so this is not fan fiction, uh, but it, it resembles fan fiction in that it is my homage to uh, characters and works that I admire and that I depend on, and that I, uh, you know, part of my brain wants to inhabit. That's sort of living rent free in my brain. Um, and that it is me telling stories with and making works of art with intellectual property that I, I very clearly you know don't control. Callum, I well, I mean, I'm, I'm really
0: I'm really glad you mentioned this because I hadn't made the connection between commercial publishing or the lack of connection between commercial publishing and fan fiction. Because these things that my daughter have shown me, these people have. Uh, N- no desire to be paid anything for anything they do they just want
1: readers and um, there are a lot of them well i mean how many poets are actually paid a lot for <laughs> <they> do, right <laughs> yeah, uh, a yeah no they have they have a lot of readers that um these people some of some of these people are also extremely successful commercially published novelists although some of them are probably 11 <laughs> um, yes. it, it's not that they don't want to be paid anything for anything it's that they are working in a a particular art form where it's illegal to pay you because the intellectual yeah. property is is mm-hmm. not under their control uh, and they want readers. Um but yeah of course it's an art form and it is it is related to what I'm doing with Callimachus, although it is not the same thing.
0: Well that, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Let me ask our traditional final question on the New Books Network and that is what are you working on now other than chasing kids
1: around. Well, I thought you were going to ask me to read a few poems. Do you want me to do that or is that for a different Well time? you can you can still definitely read a poem if you'd like to um why don't i answer your what am i working on now besides chasing kids around question and then if you want we can uh go out with a couple of poems so that okay, people who, who want to read poems on a page uh, but prefer their podcasts to be conversations um can uh you know skip the poems and uh, make a beeline for the book um they don't say it you know in between poems thank you so much for this conversation it is an honor to be part of it and and you're Thank I really enjoy this kind of interview. Um so what am I working on now? I am looking right now at the whiteboard that I keep in my uh you know home office, um, my my closet like home office, uh, which I really love and feel lucky to have, uh, because after a year of working from home, my uh working memory capacity is is really just nothing. So I have a whiteboard and I depend on it. Um, I am working on a couple of academic articles. One is about 60s poetry and urban renewal. I'm collaborating with a graduate student. One is about the poetics of shipping containers with particular reference to the modern poetry of New Zealand. Um, There's some Yeats scholarship. Uh, There is an essay, and there are going to be a couple essays in a collaborative book about how to read X-Men comics, uh, which will be published by Columbia university press in a couple of years. And I'm very lucky in terms of who I'm working with there. Um, Tadi Thomas, who is a scholar of, uh, black theology and Ramsey Fawas, who was a cultural studies person at the university of Wisconsin and the podcaster Jay Edidin and the novelist Rachel Gold. Um, It looks like I'm going to be co-writing an online comic, which I think I'm not quite allowed to announce yet. Uh, But if you're listening to this podcast in uh, the fall or the autumn of 2021, or if you're listening to this podcast in the spring of 2021, and you're in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, and you Google my name and online comics, uh, you may see what I'm working on. I'm very, very excited about that there is going to be a, an anthology also from Columbia of poems from before the 1920s about queer erotics and proto-queer identities because uh, my friend Drew Daniel at Johns Hopkins and I discovered that if you are teaching an introduction to queer lit class and you want a book of queer poems from before the 20th century, none exists. There are doorstop anthologies of lesbian literature and of gay male literature that are, you know, 20% poetry, and there are 5 million anthologies of queer poetry from the last 100 years, which of course have had permissions fees of who knows what. Uh, But despite the fact that it would be free uh, to the press that chose to do this and had Uh, you know, no permissions fees, because these are all public domain works, there is nothing that is the poems you'd want to give to queer lit students and lovers of queer lit from the beginning of English and translation into English up until the 1920s. So Drew and I and Sanchez from Penn are doing that. Um, Oh, and there's going to be a book of, there's going to be two books of poems by me One is a mini book, a chat book that Rain Taxi Editions is doing this summer that is poems related. Those are fandom poems. They're poems about superheroes. They're poems about cartoons. Uh, They are are poems that have sources in non-realist modern stories. And then there's going to be a full-length book of poems by me from Grey Wolf Press, who have been amazing to work with, that will probably come out towards the end of 2022.
0: Yeah, a shout-out to Grey Wolf Press. We do a lot of their books. Cool. Uh, Who was the last Grey Wolf writer you interviewed? I don't remember. I mean, we published so many interviews with so many authors that I couldn't come up with something.
1: It is is a network. Yeah, no, I feel – I can't say how lucky I am to have uh, Grey Wolf on my side.
0: Yeah, yeah. So do you want to take
1: us out with a poem? Okay. Okay. Uh, How about one of the poems in homage to uh, the goddess Hera? Uh, which is also a poem about uh, being grateful to have uh, publishers, honestly, and <laughs> engineers and uh, interviewers um, okay. and, uh, you know, people who, who assist and bring this work out into the world. Uh, and it is also, it's also really a poem about parenting. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky that my kids are old enough that they're not going to, you know, eat glass uh, while I do this interview. Uh, one's in on school and the other, you know, is walking the dog and hanging out. Uh, and I'm lucky to have the other adults in my life um, who who are, are there for them. So this is a version of Fragment 100 from book four of the Aetia. Everybody wants to be the talent. Nobody wants to be the one to manage the place and implement compromises needed for everyone else to continue to function. That's true around here, and also on Mount Olympus. Consider this wooden plank, whose knots resemble eyes. It shakes tan hair and eyelashes. Tradition at Samos says, before expert carvers existed, this board was regarded as a true and holy image of Hera, set in an altar and worshipped along with the rest, much like the crude or primitivist Athena at Lindos. Why? The queen of Olympus, the wife of Zeus, is also the god's organizer, their schedule maker, quartermaster, and carer. The other gods perfect themselves, They choose their fearsome or awesome self-presentation in detail, whether beautiful or sublime, violet-lidded or plaited or shining hair loose when they face a congregation. She can't or won't. She doesn't have the time. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you
0: very much. Let me just conclude by saying, Stephanie, it's, it's been just terrific
1: to talk to you. This has been fun. Uh, I think I got to write more books so we can do this again.
0: Yeah, I think so too. All right. Thanks very much. Goodbye.